All right, here's something that I haven't told many people. I've had the same reoccurring nightmare for the last two years. Why am I smiling? <laughs> two years it's been happening, and it kind of varies a little bit sometimes, but it usually goes something like this. The nightmare starts, and I'm in a scenario or a circumstance that I'm not prepared for. I'm not ready. I can't handle it in the moment. So for the longest time, probably for six months, it had to do with my wedding vows. The nightmare would start, and I would be in front of my bride. It would be time to say our vows, and I would look, and I wouldn't have my vows with me. And I'd be wondering, oh man, do I just wing it? Do I kind of let her go first and listen to what she says and then repeat it back to her? But we got married, praise God. And then, this is, I'm talking real life now. <laughs> and then my nightmare changed. So I would have the dream again, but this time we would be renewing our vows. It would be 40 years later, we're old and wrinkly. That's not the nightmare, but I, would, I, wouldn't, have my, I wouldn't have my vows on me again and it would repeat itself. One time, uh, I was about to head down the aisle and go onto the stage for the wedding ceremony, and the nightmare was that I didn't have a tie. I realized I didn't have a tie. My groomsmen, they didn't have ties. My mom walks up and she says, here, use this. And it was a, it was a clown nose. It was one of those red balls, and I'm trying to get it to stick, and it kept falling, and it kept falling, and it kept falling. Sometimes, this was before I got engaged, the nightmare was always that I was going up the steps onto a stage for a show or a sermon, and I didn't have any notes with me. I didn't have my briefcase. And so I was walking up and I didn't know what I was going to do. Thank God that I'm not in a profession that involves presentations and reoccurring deadlines. <laughs> God is funny. Uh, oh, one more, this is well, the last one. Sometimes it's a, a burglar breaks into my house and I'm frozen, I can't move, I can't say anything. And I'm just watching this burglar walk through my house and I'm helpless. And he's, he's touching my books. He's, he's peeing on the toilet seat. He's drinking my milk. He's eating my cookies. It is, it is a home invasion. Uh, but just this week, I was reflecting on these nightmares and what seems to be the reoccurring theme. And it seems to be this. It's that they revolve around me not being able to handle a situation or a scenario. The, the terrible part of the dream is that I'm incapable, that I'm incompetent, that I'm not prepared for anything. What's funny about this is that this is not at all how I tend to actually feel or act in real life. This is not how I navigate through the world, always in fear of being incapable or incompetent. I recently did some really intense personality survey stuff uh, kind of the most, the most rigorous ones in the world today. And one of the results that came back from this is that I am extremely, extremely low on sensitivity to negative emotion. I'm like the lowest 2% of the population. So I feel things like anger and fear and frustration and anxiety, but they don't, they don't quite hit me the same way. So an advantage is that I'm, I'm very resilient, but a disadvantage is that I'm not very empathetic. It's hard for me to, to feel what other people are feeling because I don't feel much myself either way. The worst part is this, just as I'm beginning to identify the patterns of my nightmares and understanding how they relate to me in real life, just as I'm doing all this, the circumstances of my real life are beginning to match the circumstances of my nightmares. So with my nightmares, I go to sleep every night and I'm stuck in a circumstance that I don't know how to handle. But in real life now, I'm waking up 
and I don't know how to handle the circumstances around me in the world today. So now my nightmare is expanded and includes you. Isn't that nice? But I look around and I don't know what's coming next. Everything is changing. It seems chaotic. I don't have the skills. I don't even know what skills I'm going to need to survive in the world next week, right? Two years ago, a couple cells and a virus do something strange. And all of a sudden now your kids are doing school from home. All of a sudden the price of consumer goods goes up 15%, but inflation kicks in. And so your salary, it doesn't do as much as it used to. Real estate goes up 30%, which is nice if you have a house. It sucks if you've been saving for one for a whole decade. Uh, if you live in British Columbia or Brazil, wildfires are going nuts and the soot from the smoke is now compounding with COVID to make it more destructive than it already was. And if you're not in BC, back home, the virus is still mutating and so we don't know what to do. In the field of mathematics and physics, there's a distinction they make and I kind of find it helpful when I'm thinking about the world today. In the fields, they distinguish between a complex versus a complicated problem or system. Complex versus complicated. Let's first look at complicated. If a situation or a system is complicated, it has several parts, but these parts operate in a linear fashion. They're deterministic. So if you understand the parts well enough, you can accurately predict what's going to happen. So take a computer for an example. A computer is complicated, but if you know how all the parts work, you can understand what a computer is going to do. You can call someone on the phone from across the world and they can say, my computer isn't working. And they can walk you through the steps if they know it well enough. That's if something is complicated, behaves in a linear fashion. But if something is complex, it's non-deterministic. It doesn't operate in these linear fashions. It's kind of uh, has emergent properties. It evolves unpredictably in time. It's got multiple components and they all interact with each other and change how they develop. Here's an example, the internet, right? The people who created social media, they had no clue how the algorithms would develop, how it would influence things like e-commerce, how we buy things today, how it would influence mental health, how it would influence elections, how it would influence the music industry. That is complex. You can't call someone on the phone and say, hey, um, how do I fix the internet culture of the world? They, they wouldn't know what to do. So the world as a whole right now, it feels very complex. I don't know what's coming next. Things aren't following rules. I don't know how to prepare. I don't know how to handle anything. The world is not how I thought that it was. And this fear of the unknown, this stress of the imminent, it can be paralyzing. It can create an anxious fear in us. Or maybe you don't freeze in the face of it. Maybe you start to claw and you start fighting for control in the face of this as well. And in all of this, you feel exposed, you feel threatened, you feel challenged, you feel stressed, and you wonder this, where is God in my fear? Where is God? Does he care about this? I'm suffering. I don't know what to do each day. I feel like a liar because every single night I put my kids to bed and I tell them everything's going to be okay. And I feel like a fraud because I don't know if that's going to be true. Where is God in my fear? We're spending the month of September studying God's word. We're doing a Psalm a Sunday, looking at how we find God, how we walk well, how we operate in these patterns of life during these difficult seasons of pain and suffering. We're answering this question, where is God? 
Last week, we looked at the question, where is God in my disappointment? And we studied Psalm 42, and we saw how we can hope in God. This week, we're actually looking at Psalm 55. We're asking, where is God in my, in my fear? And it's important to notice at the outset, we're not asking, why did God? We're asking, where is God? If we're asking, why did God? That's really hard to give a response to because us being finite, limited creatures don't always access to the reasons and reasoning of the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. So it's not surprising that we don't know always why God did something. However, even though we don't always have access to God's reasons, we do always have access to God's character. We don't always have access to God's reasons, but we do always have access to God's character. So we can still find him in these seasons of life. We're asking, where is God? How do I find him in this season? This week we're looking at, how do I find God in my fear? To do so, would you turn with me to Psalm 55? It'll be helpful if you have it right in front of you. There's three threads, three components of this psalm that we see kind of weaving in and out at the same time, and they're this. The first component is imminent danger. That's the first thing we see. The second thing that we see is intimate betrayal, and the third thing is an infinite God. So let's start looking at the imminent danger. So in Psalm 55, starting in verse 2, we see David saying this, I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. David's describing his external circumstances. And now he's going to start describing his internal state. <clears throat> My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh... Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David's enemies are at the gate. Verse 10 says that day and night they go around and inside the city things are falling apart. Oppression and fraud and wickedness rule the marketplace. And David, in the midst of it, wishes he could just fly away. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I could just get out of here. When I was, when I was preparing for this sermon, the first time I read this psalm, I actually started laughing because I saw myself in this. During February last year, I was sick. Of, uh, not physically sick. I was fed up. I was sick of the lockdowns. I was sick of being in the city. I was sick of just being in the city in the winter. And I was thinking of all the ways that I could escape every night for at least a whole month. I would, uh, I would search up online big plots of land that were for sale in Northern Ontario, 100 acres at the minimum. But if you had more, I'd be happy to take it. And then I was looking up blueprints for off-the-grid cabins. Uh, I was searching up, how do you do all the woodwork for it? How do you do the electrical side of things, the plumbing in a way that's self-sufficient off the grid? How do you store food for the winter? How do you prepare, uh, you know, things like doors and windows? How would I have a dog out there? How would I convince my wife that I would want to come out here? I was thinking of all these ways that I just wanted to get out of the city and be gone and live on my own. 
this was my means of trying to escape my present circumstances. I would still love to build an off-the-grid cabin, but I would do so in a more healthy state. It's helpful to know also that we see in the Psalms and we see in Scripture, there are spiritual giants who faced this temptation to run, to flee. Whether they actually did it, like Elijah, 1 Kings 19, or resisted this temptation, like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, there's always an urge to flee. If you're familiar with uh, the play Hamlet, right, the, the guy who's holding a skull and he says, to be or not to be. He's wrestling with this. He says whether it's more noble to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to flee. In Hamlet's case, he was contemplating taking his own life to run from it. In his desperation, in Psalm 55, David does not run. What does he do? What ought we to do in our fear, in our imminent threat and danger? The answer is not fleeing from the situation, but calling God into the situation. It's not the instinctive fear of escapism, but it's the cultivated solution of prayer. I'll say that one more time. The answer is not to flee from the situation, but to call God into the situation. It's not our instinctive response of running away, but the cultivated, practiced behavior of prayer. So how do we find God in our fear? The first thing that we see is this in Psalm 55. Call on the Lord. Verses 16 and 17. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. So how do I find God in my fear and in my uncertainty? Well, we don't hide our emotions and we don't bow to our emotions, we pray through our emotions. Hiding our emotions is just a stoic denial, acting like they're not there, pushing them to the side. Bowing to our emotions is just letting it overwhelm us, remaining in the state of despair and wailing. Neither of those solve the issue. The fear remains and it acts like a, a mildew. It starts to rot the heart. Physically, on a autotomic level, your system, it starts to kick into gear. You start getting ulcers, your blood pressure is higher, your brain produces the stress hormone cortisol, and in high levels, that can actually be deadly. It can be toxic to your brain as well. David calls on the Lord. So we don't hide our emotions. We don't bow to our emotions. We drag them into the presence of God. And here's a fun part. In, in driving David to prayer, his enemies have already sealed their fate. In driving God's people to prayer, their enemies have already overreached themselves. And that's worth remembering in this situation. So that's part one. We see imminent danger and we see David's response is to call on the Lord. The second phase of Psalm 55 is this. We also see an intimate betrayal. Verses 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. If it was an enemy, he could deal with it. David was a seasoned veteran of battle, enemies at the gates, a little scuff up outside, that's all in a day's work. But friends make the worst enemies. 
we rarely give our enemies an opportunity to, uh, to hurt us in this way. We don't give them the latitude. They can hurl insults, they can slander us, they can physically injure us. And we usually have our guard up. Most times you're ready for it. It hurts, but in not quite the same way. But with our friends and our family, we kind of let them inside our gates. We let our walls down. We let them have access to the secret parts of ourselves. And rarely and unfortunately, there are circumstances where they will leverage that against us to hurt us. Here's an example. The husband who leaves his wife for another woman. The wife who gossips about her husband's weaknesses. The son who walks away from the faith. The daughter who keeps making destructive decisions. The father who overworks to avoid his family. The mother who relentlessly demands and condemns. Or the friend who disappears when we need them most. Betrayal hurts and it's also disorienting. Because when we are betrayed, we learn that the world, that this person is not who I thought they were. It turns out I was wrong in a really big way. So once again, we are disoriented. The world is different than how I thought it was. And I can freeze or I can cling for control. So we don't know in Psalm 55 whom exactly David is talking about. That's not clear. But we do know that he was betrayed by those closest to him in David's life. And we know some of who these people were. One such person was his son, Absalom. Absalom, Absalom, that's how you say it. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. So his son Absalom murdered his other son to avenge his sister's rape. It's getting Game of Thrones up in here. <laughs> think about that again, slowly. And think about just the awful weight of this father's heartache. Think about trying to care for your family in the midst of this hurricane of pain and relations, all while your heart is being beaten up and drowned. So despite the evil that his son had done, David brought back this prodigal murderer. This is all in 2 Samuel. It's got a couple highlights for you. He established boundaries. He eventually welcomed his own son with a kiss. And how did Absalom respond to his father's kindness, his patience and forgiveness? <laughs> this is what he did. He conspired to overthrow his father's kingdom. He slandered his father's reputation. He lied to his father's face and he forced his father into hiding for fear of his life. So he not only betrayed his brother, his own flesh and blood, but he betrayed the father who had forgiven him for murdering his brother. And this betrayal, it cost 20,000 men their lives. 20,000. So David may have not written Psalm 55 about his son, but he certainly could have said these words about the betrayal that he felt from his son. Do you kind of see what I'm doing here? These words could apply. A little bit of backstory helps to empathize with him a little bit more. Jesus could have actually said these words about Judas, about a close friend of him that also betrayed him. Do you know this pain? Do you know this kind of betrayal? Do you know this kind of opposition? In this season, are there people that you've let in who turned out not to be who you thought they were after you'd already let your guard down? In his pain, we see that David first calls upon the Lord. But when he calls upon the Lord, what does he do? What do we do? Cast your burden on the Lord. Verse 22 says this. I love this. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord 
and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. The word burden, some commentators say that it's it's almost a little bit too restrictive. Burden, it kind of means cast your lot on the Lord or cast the hand that you've been dealt on the Lord. Everything you've got, the totality of the circumstances of your life, put these on the Lord. And what happens when you do? What what does it say in verse 22? He sustains you. He will sustain you. It's not cast your burden on the Lord and he will make it go away. doesn't say that there. It's not cast your burden on the Lord and he will make you happy or he will make you healthy or he will make you wealthy or he will make you popular. It doesn't say any of that. It says cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You get him. He is enough and he will sustain you in the midst of your circumstances. There's no guarantee of an elimination of your problems. The promise is God himself, that he will be your sustenance. That's the solution. That's the secret ingredient in Psalm 55. It's the infinite God, the infinite God of the cosmos, who made everything you've ever seen, who's made everything you've ever thought of, the guy who created colors and flavors, every combination of flavors you've ever had. He made that. Every single sound outside and inside, every single song you've ever heard, every single plot of every movie or book or song, he's thought of them all. The guy who made the billions and billions of stars. He's not the groundskeeper. He's the guy who made it. He's the guy who created it. That's who is promised to sustain God's people. This is the being who promises to be with you. This is the one who says, I will sustain you for today. My grace is made, my grace, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So I'm not strong enough to carry this, God. I can't handle this burden. But God, you can. Jesus said in the garden on the night of his betrayal, not my will, but yours be done. And he felt fear in that garden. He felt anguish to the point that he was sweating blood. We have an empathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be betrayed by those closest to him. This is the one who sustains you. The same spirit of God who sustained Christ in his suffering also sustains you today in this season. So in our fear, we can follow this example of David in calling on God. And when we call on God, we cast our burden upon him. Maybe you're wondering, how do I do this? How do I cast my burden on God? You know, these sermons sound great, but I have no clue how to pull it off. A couple things you could do. You could do it in your own words. Last week, we talked about structure for lament, but you've also got scripture. You can pray scripture back to God. You can cast your burdens on him just like David does. When I was meditating on Psalm 55 this week, there were two things that really stuck out to me when I was thinking, how do we cast our burdens on God? Two things that stood out. When we cast our burdens on him, one, we relinquish control, and two, we resign our throne. Why do we relinquish control? Verse 22 says, he will never permit the righteous to be moved permit. Permit is to allow. You ask for building permits when you want to build something. You get a parking permit when you want permission to park somewhere. Satan went to God for permission to attack Job. So God will never permit 
the righteous to be moved. If he's the one giving permission, he's the one in control. So in casting my burden on God, I'm admitting, I'm confessing that God is sovereign, that he is the one in control. And secondly, resign our throne. It says this also, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. So when I cast my burden on him, I'm looking for him to sustain me because I know that I can't sustain myself, though I may try. I've propped up this little Sawyer-sized throne in my world and I've made a mess of everything and now the world is crashing down around me, so I resign my throne. I acknowledge that God is sovereign and I acknowledge that God is sufficient. You are sufficient for me in my circumstances. I don't need to be on the throne. You're already on the throne and I need to let you do your thing. I confess that you're sovereign and you're sufficient for my burdens. The end of the Psalm, David says this, I will trust in you. Last week we talked about hope, how we can hope in God and our disappointment. This week is about trust, how we find God in our fear and how we trust him to be sovereign and to be sufficient for us, for our burdens. When we find out that the world is not how we thought it was, when we have imminent danger and intimate betrayal, we don't flee from our situation. We call God into our situation. We don't hide our emotions. We don't bow down to our emotions. We drag them into the presence of God. We pray through them. We cast them at his feet and he will sustain us.